0: You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice,
1: no peace. No justice, no peace. No On the streets, justice, the U.S. No is embroiled in its fiercest struggle over race since the 1960s. But in the courtrooms, conservatives are seeing their best shot in decades to get rid of race in college admissions. Some of the nation's most prestigious universities are fighting a raft of legal challenges, accusing them of unfairly weighting the admissions process through affirmative action. The multiple efforts to defeat race-conscious admissions on several levels, including by Trump's Justice Department, are intended to get an increasingly conservative Supreme Court to rethink its decisions on affirmative action. My guest is Audrey Anderson, who heads the education practice at Bass, Barry, and Sims. She was the former general counsel of Vanderbilt University. Audrey, does it seem sort of incongruous that this legal fight to reverse affirmative action is picking up while the country is in this epic struggle over race? Well, this is one of
2: the conundrums of where the legal principles are with affirmative action. The marching in the streets and our protests are about unjust treatment, of people based on race. The legal constructs for affirmative action at a college or university are not justified on evening out the inequitable treatment based on race. It's not to remedy past discrimination. So when we as lawyers are thinking about this, the only reason that the Supreme Court has approved consideration of race in university admissions, is in order to build a student body that has a certain level of diversity to improve the educational experience. They are not allowed to use race in admissions in order to make up for the hundreds of years of discrimination against Black and brown people in the United States. So from a legal perspective, we're almost operating in two different universes. And that's a really hard
1: thing for people
2: to wrap their heads around.
1: Behind the three major suits against Harvard, the University of North Carolina, and the University of Texas is the activist Edward Blum, who founded Students for Fair Admissions. Are they saying that these universities are not complying with established law, or are they saying more than that? Well, Jude, I think they're really saying two things. They are
2: saying that Harvard is not complying with the Supreme Court law that says if you are going to use race in university admissions, you have to do it in a way that is narrowly tailored. And Edward Blum says that Harvard is not using race in a way that is narrowly tailored. But make no mistake, in each one of these cases, they are also arguing that actually the Supreme Court precedents from the University of Michigan cases are wrong. And that actually the proper way to read the Constitution is to say that it does not allow universities to be conscious of race, to use race as any kind of a factor in admission. In every one of their briefs, they drop a footnote that says, lower court, we know you can't consider this argument because it's only for the Supreme Court. But by the way, we think the Supreme Court decisions in the University of Michigan cases are wrong. So Blum's ultimate goal is to get the University of Michigan case
1: overruled by
2: the Supreme Court. That's his ultimate goal.
1: In the Harvard case, which is now at the Federal Appeals Court, Asians account for 23% of the admitted class at Harvard. The plaintiff said if judged purely on academics, they would make up 43% of the admitted class. So do the plaintiffs want everyone to be judged purely on academics? So then Harvard would have a class with 43% Asian-Americans. Well, that's one of the problems with looking at it this way. Harvard
2: and Yale and Columbia and Stanford, they could completely fill their class a number of times over with students with perfect test scores and a perfect VPS. So it's really just silliness to say that we're only going to judge students on the basis of their, quote unquote, academic merit. What these schools are trying to do and what the Supreme Court has said they have a First Amendment right to do is to choose students that they believe are best suited for their institution. And that does not have to be just based on academic merit. But SFFA and other groups like them keep trying to say, well, all you should look at is academic merit because that is, quote, unquote, objective. And any time you put a subjective component into your admissions criteria, you might be discriminating against someone.
1: What is the Justice Department's role (laughs) here?
2: So in general, the Justice Department has the responsibility to enforce a federal law that we call Title VI. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act requires that institutions that receive federal funds cannot discriminate on the basis of race. So the Department of Justice is in charge of enforcing that law, and it always has been. Since Trump has been in power, the way that the Department of Justice has decided it needs to enforce Title VI is to make sure that affirmative action is not being used to discriminate against whites and Asians.
1: Now, the Justice Department sent Yale University a letter threatening to sue unless Yale agrees to stop considering race. The government said that, quote, unlawfully dividing Americans into racial and ethnic blocks fosters stereotypes, bitterness, and division. Was this letter unusual in any way? So the government, when it's enforcing
2: Title VI, can bring an action in federal court to sue an institution to force it to comply with the law. What they're supposed to do before bringing suit is work in good faith with the institution to negotiate to get the institution to comply with federal law. So the unusual thing about this letter to Yale was that it didn't go into much detail about exactly how Yale was in violation of the law, what Yale could do to come into compliance short of just not having affirmative action and have kind of a timetable for Yale to come into compliance rather than just saying, you know, if you don't stop using your affirmative action program in a matter of weeks, we will sue you. Usually they would say, you need to consider applications in this way rather than that way, and we'd like to see you institute that change over the next admission cycle, and then we'll take another look at your data, and then we'll talk to you again, and then we'll determine whether we're going to sue. So that's the way the Department of Justice usually works with institutions. So that was one of the things that was surprising about that letter to
1: Yale. So then does this indicate a step up in the Trump administration's overlook of the use of affirmative action in college admissions? Yes, it's
2: a step up and it's very aggressive. As I was saying, the very short timing they've in Yale to say we're going to sue To me, that sets off alarm bells because they're doing it, I think, to file suit before the election in case Trump is not elected. Then they'll already have that lawsuit going and on the books. And a new Biden administration will have to deal with it with a lawsuit, taking a position that a Biden administration probably won't want to take. And they can change their position, but it's just administratively and politically awkward.
1: So the goal seems to be to get this to the Supreme Court Are they any closer to that goal? Absolutely. I think that
2: the Students for Fair Admission has been strategic in the way that they are pursuing this litigation. So the best way to get an issue before the Supreme Court of the United States is to generate what we call a conflict among the circuits. So right now, the Harvard case is before the First Circuit Court of Appeals. They will issue a decision. So right now, our SFFA is going to have a trial happen in the Middle District of North Carolina for the University of North Carolina. Whatever happens with that suit, it will be appealed to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Whoever loses in the First Circuit with a Harvard case, they will ask the Supreme Court to review it. The Supreme Court may review it. They may not. But then we go to the North Carolina case. Whatever happens at trial, they'll appeal it to the Fourth Circuit. Whatever happens at the Fourth Circuit, whoever loses will go to the Supreme Court. And at that point, there will be a decision from the First Circuit. If the Fourth Circuit disagrees with the First Circuit, that's when the Supreme Court should be stepping in. And then the Texas case is in yet another circuit, in the Fifth Circuit. So Blum, by picking these schools in different parts of the country, is trying to set up, I think, a conflict amongst the circuits, which makes it more likely that the Supreme Court will step
1: in. If the Supreme Court steps in, it will be a court with a new conservative majority on it. Is there a concern that the court might reverse the Michigan decision? Yes, I think there is a concern
2: that will be overruled, or they may not even have to overrule it. You might remember that in Grutter, the controlling opinion by Justice O'Connor had language in it that I would call dicta, not important to the holding, not part of the holding. But there's language in it that says, we don't expect the need for affirmative action to go on forever. In 25 years, we won't need it anymore. That was in 2003. So I think that uh, Supreme Court justice could even try to say, well, we're not even overruling that precedent. We're just saying, as Justice O'Connor predicted, that the need for affirmative action is gone. Now, when somebody says that, I think then the, the public will say, we'll look at what's been happening in the streets this summer and say, Really? I'm not quite sure how you can say the need for affirmative action is
1: gone. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Audrey. That's Audrey Anderson of Bass, Barry & Sims. The clash over undocumented immigrants and the census is back at the Supreme Court. President Trump lost the fight to add a citizenship question to the census at the court. His plan B is an executive order for federal agencies to hand over existing data on undocumented immigrants to the Census Bureau so it can exclude them from its count. Today I'm here to say we are not backing down on our effort to determine the citizenship status of the United States population. The problem is that a three-judge panel ruled the president doesn't have the authority to do that. So now Trump is back at the Supreme Court to appeal that decision, and the justices have decided to expedite his appeal. My guest is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Trump has asked the Supreme Court to let the president exclude undocumented immigrants from the census count. Now, most people thinking about this will say, well, wasn't this settled by the Supreme Court when the court ruled that the administration couldn't add a citizenship question to the census?
0: Well, that was a different case in that the citizenship question was decided on a procedural issue rather than the substantive decision of whether you could ask about citizenship in the census. It was decided on the fact that the Department of Commerce, the Census Bureau, didn't follow the correct procedures in order to add that question so late in the process about citizenship and that the reasons that the government gave for adding that citizenship question were pretextual because there had been some comments in the record about wanting to add this for purposes of trying to discount non-citizen people from the census. And so one could say, well, maybe that it covers it, but it doesn't exactly cover it because the issue wasn't decided, could you count non-citizen people in the census? It was just decided that the reason that was given, which was supposedly about voting rights, was pretextual in light of the comments that had been given about the non-citizen issue.
1: So, Leon, tell us about this three-judge panel decision.
0: It started as a case in the federal district court in New York. But what happens is, under the Constitution, apportionment cases under the census actually are three-judge panel cases. So two circuit judges from the Second Circuit were added to the district judge in New York. And those three judges entered an order that said that the calculation that you would exclude people with undocumented status from the census was unconstitutional and violated the apportionment clause.
1: My question is more about the practical aspects of this. How would the Trump administration conclusively determine who's in undocumented status and where they're living to lower the census count?
0: There are surveys that are done both by the Department of Homeland Security and by the Census Bureau in the American Community Survey that's done on a more frequent basis than the 10-year census basis that are supposed to find out that information and take it into account and try to make estimates as to what is the undocumented population in the country. But those estimates are not very accurate. And so you could be potentially costing a state, a member of Congress, if you are even inaccurate on an order of magnitude of a few thousand people one way or another. And when we're talking about 11 million people or 10 million people or 12 million people where we don't even know, and there's not really any estimate that's firm. There's not a consensus on the estimate. Some people write these reports that say that there's 20 million people that are undocumented. That lack of consensus that's out there really makes it very hard to figure out how you deduce people if you don't actually have an objective one-for-one match in terms of census data.
1: If they do that, it sounds like it's
0: ripe for challenge. Well, correct. And that was the argument actually the administration was making is, well, tell us after the fact, if we actually hurt a state's apportionment, then you should challenge our calculation. Don't challenge it now. It's too early. And the Second Circuit rejected that argument saying, look, it's still illegal. So even if nobody was hurt, they're still hurt by having this illegal policy placed upon people. And so we're going to invalidate it without waiting to see if a particular state's count was harmed as a matter of this.
1: And when is the Census Bureau going to stop its counting?
0: The president is trying to say that there's a statutory deadline of December 31st of 2020. And because of that, the census should stop counting as of today. And a district court in California has actually enjoined that stopping of the count and has scheduled the stopping of the counts to take till October 30th because there's no justification for why they would stop counting earlier than they had originally said. And so the court had enjoined that, and now the federal government is saying, well, we're going to keep counting till October 5th. And so there was hearing about whether that's contempt of the court's ruling. And whether that October 5th decision is going to be vacated and whether that will be moved to October 30th again. President,
1: authority to do that. Leon Trump is seeking an argument session in late November or early December. That sets up a possibility that conservative Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett could be on that panel. Would that make a difference to have one more conservative? Last time, Chief Justice John Roberts was the swing vote. So it was basically
0: conservatives versus liberals. I mean, at this point, it's hard to predict. It's it's possible that we would have an unprecedented ruling we've never had before, which is that people without status in America, even though the census says count all people, that those people are not people and that they don't count as people. Uh, and usually you don't see those rulings because the Constitution uses the word citizen and, you know, so there's a difference of when you use the word person or where you use the word citizen and they said you would use person when you meant person and it would use citizen when it meant citizen. And so that was the idea and that's how, that's been how the Constitution's been interpreted. So this would be sort of a groundbreaking decision that would deviate from president to say that suddenly people don't mean doesn't mean people, but means people with some sort of status in the United States that's concretized. So this isn't actually even just saying don't count undocumented people, saying don't count people with temporary visas or anything else like this either. So it seems as if
1: President Trump, you know, during his last election campaign in 2016, he talked about immigration all the time as he did during most of his presidency, immigration, the wall. But does it seem as if the topic of immigration is fading into the background a little? It wasn't even mentioned at debates.
0: I think it depends who the audience is. If the audience is the people being affected by the immigration plan, new immigration plans that are very robust and affect hundreds of thousands of people a day, are issued almost on a weekly basis. So from the administration's context, I wouldn't say it faded into the background. I would still say it's the front and center regulatory priority of this White House. It's the most important thing. It's just a question of if in the news sector, this is the most interesting story of the day, given that in general COVID is still the biggest story that there is, plus the social unrest, plus the election people seem to want to talk less about COVID. I mean, sorry, less about uh, immigration because COVID has sort of put immigration into the background, both in terms of there isn't necessarily at this moment a very high need for new people to come in the country. There isn't travel that's allowing this. The embassies aren't open for the most part. You know, they are open, but it's, it's mattering. And so it's not really something that that's as at the forefront because of the COVID issues, then it will be that it was, and then it will be post-COVID.
1: Point taken, Leon, and to your point, there are new fees that are supposed to come into effect on October 2nd, which would jack up the fees that immigrants pay when they come to the United States. And tell us, a federal judge has blocked that?
0: Right. Uh, Last night, a federal judge Blocked the new fee rule that would have increased fees substantially for certain different categories, including naturalization and, uh, and filing for temporary visas. And that fee was invalidated because they actually ruled that the current Secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, was improperly appointed as uh, head of Homeland Security. So he did not have authority to promulgate that rule on the fees. And so if that true, that's going to actually affect a lot of different rules, not just this B rule. So this is going to be very interesting as that gets litigated to a higher court, all the way up to the Supreme Court. Will the Supreme Court find that Chad Wolf was improperly appointed? And I, you know, I think it'll be a close case. I don't know that that's a partisan issue. It seems hyper-partisan in the sense that you're asking whether President Trump's appointee was appointed properly, but it's really just a technical legal question. And look, if you decide it one way, then that means another administration that you're not ideologically aligned with can do the same thing. And fine, then they can do the same thing. But if you decide it in in a way that you're invalidating it, well, that means that other administrations can't do the same thing. But it also means that a lot of policies that were promulgated while Chad Wolf has been at the head, of the Department of Homeland Security would suddenly be in danger. How
1: much are the fees being hiked? Does it really make a difference to immigrants? Well, it
0: it depends because it's between $600 and $1,000 per application. And so if you're in a situation where it's a business paying for a worker, it might not make a huge difference. But if you're in a situation where you're a family of four who came here through either a work program or a refugee program, or some other program, and now you're being asked to pay an additional $4,000 for citizenship that you didn't have before, maybe that's cost prohibitive and you don't want to become a citizen at that point.
1: Another proposed rule that I haven't heard very much about is the biometrics immigration rule. So 6 million would-be immigrants would face expanded collection of iris scans, palm and voice prints, facial recognition, and DNA. What's the stated purpose of this?
0: Well, I think what had happened was that the biometric collection in the administration had been done in kind of a ad hoc manner, and there wasn't sort of an overarching rule that explained this is what we wanted to collect and this is why. But from that component, that's perfectly valid. And also there needed to be a couple of clarifications about when you could collect fingerprints from minors who are going through the system. And also what do you do with the shocking amount of people you'd be surprised who you can't take fingerprints from there's like, you know, senior citizens, a lot of times for whatever reason, have problems getting fingerprints from them or people who work in construction and who've had damage to their fingers. And so, you know, now there's a from that standpoint, you concretize the ability to get back up biometrics such as iris scans or facial scans uh, that kind of thing. So from that component, it's good, but it also lays out very broad guidelines of being able to collect these things conceivably in every single case, in, for any single purpose that is desired by the Department of Homeland Security, and that's where folks are saying, well, wait a second, is this too broad? because of how much, how many biometrics it allows people to collect for pretty much any reason that they feel is a justified uh, reason for Homeland Security purposes. Almost
1: every time I talk to you, Leon, I have to ask a question about the wall. And I, supp- yes. and I think that that is going to play, you know, President Trump is going to emphasize his building of the wall in his campaign. So where does the wall stand and what are the legal challenges
0: to it? Well, the wall continues to be built quite a pace at this point. Uh, and there's, you know, about 400 miles of wall. That's official wall-like kind that President Trump said he was going to uh, build. But only five miles of it are in locations that didn't have some barrier previously. So it just depends whether you want to call that wall or not wall. And so that's in the eye of the beholder. But there's not a lot of new locations that didn't have a barrier that have this new wall that I think the president would call the kind of wall that he promised.
1: So is it is it still being challenged at the Supreme Court, the use of military money to fund the wall?
0: Well, the Supreme Court has allowed all of these challenges to be stayed in the sense that the wall can continue to be built as they go up. But no final determination has been reached about whether the Supreme Court will stop construction of the wall at some point, saying that it's illegal. So, yes, the circuits have have continued to bring that litigation uh, apace to say, yes, this is still illegal. But one would suspect that with the composition of the court now, which is 5-3, and then if it ends up being 6-3, that there's not going to be a barrier to the president building the wall, at least with the current litigation that has been filed. There may be, at some point pretty soon, as they try to put wall in places where there wasn't wall, some adverse possession, eminent domain type of litigation, but that's different than the litigation we've seen in the past, which is that the funding has been improperly diverted from the wall. So that's the one that's been stayed and hasn't been allowed to stop the construction of the wall.
1: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Leon. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.